The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning from California. I'm so pleased to have my guest, Graham Dooley. Hi, Graham. How are you? Bonjour, Frankie. For sure. For sure to you, too. So, Graham that's, is... That's the only French I can speak. <laughs> okay. So, Graham is an Irish investigator, but he actually lives in France most of the time, so it's a little counterintuitive. Um, but... Um, some of you that are listening to this show probably don't know some of the technical difficulties we have behind the scenes sometimes, and this morning was one of those. Um, Graham uh, traveled from France to the United Kingdom, and he had to set up his Skype this morning because we're communicating by Skype, and there have been all kinds of things going on in the background. So just so you know that, um, but I'm very happy to have Graham on the on the show today. So. Graham, uh, you're going to be talking about um, skip tracing from your part of the to the world. But before you do that, I know people want to know about you. So tell us, how did I know you went to work for the police department in the UK? But what were you doing before then? Before the police, yeah, I was an engineer. I worked for the Atomic Energy Authority in the United Kingdom. and uh, I th- there were two things made my cha- change my, my mind. Is one, I came from a family of police officers um, in the United Kingdom, and number two, I every time I was working down at the windscale reactor, I en- ended up bursting one of the uh, the gloves on the um, um, on the, the the test the fuel rods and getting a dose of re- radiation. So I thought, well, I'd rather face what I can see than. Uh, uh, the not at all. So I left and joined the police force. Really? Wow. And and how do you? Uh, did you go to school to become a mechanical engineer? Is that how did you? Was that a university? Well, uh, yeah, I came from a technical background. I came from a northern town of Warrington, um, where most of the the boys that grew up there went into engineering uh, as a trade, as an apprentice, um, and sat the qualifications, became an engineering draftsman. And then suddenly had a, 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 a change of mind. Um, just one little correction. I'm only half Irish. <laughs> You're only half Irish. What's your other half? <laughs> Not too sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. Uh, so then you were a police officer for a number of years. Yes, I did uh, 18 years in the U- UK police, uh, various departments. 
uh, from the the drug squad, or I think it's called narcotics in the United Kingdom, um, and um, ended up in the police training center, um, uh, tr training officers, uh, and then uh, back out on the streets again in the 80s. Um, but following, uh, 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 I won't say, uh, well, following an incident that I had to leave the police because I got a, a, a neck injury. And of course, in those days, if you weren't fit for duty, you weren't fit for duty. It didn't matter. You had to be 100% fit. So. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, that was so unfortunate. Uh, well, it probably... wasn't that unfortunate. I've had a good life in France ever since. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, very good. So, so let me ask you. I'm. I don't understand. I don't know the uh, ins and outs of police departments in the UK. This this was different than the Metropolitan Police. Well, I was in in, in Cheshire Police. Um, uh, although my business partner Mike, who unfortunately is not here today, he was in the Metropolitan. He was a Metropolitan Police detective, um, and. Um, um, basically, Cheshire is, is a region in the, the north of England, um, as is Yorkshire and other famous places. And mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it was a, a small force, but it was a busy force. And I, I worked in the busy city of, of Chester and the busy town of Warrington. Um, so yeah, it was a good career and I was sorry to see it finish so soon. But that's life and uh, you move on. Well, okay, I have another question because I know that, um, you know, handguns are such a hot topic in the in the United States. Do your officers in Cheshire carry handguns? Well, you're talking about something that, you know, I am not a, an expert on in this day and age because I'm a French investigator. However, strangely, I've... I was discussing this very subject at the weekend uh, with my brother, who's also a former police officer. And um, and a friend, and well, when I was in the police, we didn't have handguns. We, you were very lucky if you got a, a, an emergency situation. Um, the station sergeant would issue a gun um, to probably one of the detectives who was qualified, and he would have to get it out of his safe uh, and, and give it to the officer if mm. it was necessary. And it would have to be authorized. Uh, I think it was the rank of superintendent. But now, of course. They do say that, I don't know what the figures are, please just don't quote me on this, but a high percentage, um, there's probably more armed officers on the streets of the UK um, now than unarmed officers because we don't see them. Mm -hmm. They're emergency response teams. And um, uh, for example, I was in, in Portsmouth City uh, a week last Saturday and there was a uh, a guy wielding a knife in a in a shop, and within minutes there was there was something like fifteen police officers descended, and and several of them with automatic um, machine guns and a helicopter in the air. Hmm. Times have changed since I was a policeman. They've changed drastically. Um, do you think the changes come about after nine eleven, or did it, was it happening before then, or do you know? No, I think it was happening anyway. Before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, and it wasn't for terrorism. It was for violent crime. Mm -hmm. um, because when the people who worked in the cities of Manchester, Liverpool, and London, they were fa facing violent cr criminals with without protection. Um, I, I would say if we were back in the eighties. I would still say we we didn't need 
the weapons if we'd have perhaps continued in that line. But of course, times change, and now we're looking at terrorist incidents and, mm. and excuse my French, but um, nutcases that just get hold of a, a gun and kill people. For and sure. How do you react to that? It's, I don't, you know, I see so much about your American uh, change of gun legislation, but I just don't know how you will stop anybody who wants to kill people um, on a large-scale basis recklessly. How will you stop them from doing it? There's other ways besides a gun. I, I believe that you need gun control, but mm -hmm. do you stop them? It's impossible. <laughs> and nobody seems to be able to answer that question. No, you can't. Yeah, can't right. stop them. We'll be talking to you now, and the next minute somebody could walk through my door and pop one off for some reason, just because he felt like. Mm -hmm. You just don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's only one person I think knows when uh, the, the time has come, and we'll never find that out. So. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so you had a neck injury, and then you left the department, and is that when you moved to France? Yeah, because I, I'm, I, I walk around the, <laughs> the streets of uh, of Cheshire where I live. My my ex-wife was a former police uh, sergeant as well and I was totally disillusioned and I just wondered where my career was going to go. Mm -hmm. But uh, Some years previously we'd bought a little cottage in France to renovate and, and one day I... Businesses were very expensive in the UK um, to move into at the time. Property was expensive so I said well I'm going to go over and finish the restoration work on the little cottage. Uh, and then to my surprise, uh, within months, my ex-wife turned around and told me she'd, she was leaving the police force and coming to join me, which meant that we had to earn some money very, very quickly because hmm. I, I only had uh, uh, the, the small police pension. So we both moved. We did some property renovation and, um, and then in about 1994, um, somebody contacted me with a view to investigation work and and really that's how it all started. Interesting and what year was that Graham? That was about 1993-94 it was a company in the UK had, um, had found my information and um, they contacted us and said would we do some investigation work for them so, to, to be honest, the area I live in, in France, is the most beautiful area in the world, but not very productive as far as investigation works. Mm, mm -hmm. so, so, yes, and we were traveling Portugal, Spain, doing the work, and then we found out that unlike the United Kingdom, you had to have a license in, in France. Um, that, so that was a, a big change, and we went, then went through the, uh, the procedure of licensing and what what does that require? Well, the for example, the United Kingdom doesn't have a license. They they passed a Private Security Act in two thousand and one, but they're still waiting for a license. However, France has had licensed detectives since eighteen twenty five when really? they, they were established as the the officers of the private police force. Um, so they've all they've had the licenses a long time, but what it entailed when. I took mine in 1996, was you had to have simply a criminal record check. You've got to be of good standing um, and um, you had to be reasonably qualified and they accepted my business studies qualifications and my engineering qualifications. 
Um, so I was given the uh, the license, which was obtainable from the local mayor, uh, sorry, local prefecture at the time, which is your regional administrative um, area for the, for the region you're in. Um, and we got the license, and um, well, it's it went. It was quite easy to work with the license. There were certain rules about licensing. For example, who you employed, they had to be vetted. Uh, if you employed anybody, um, you couldn't have a license if you were not a member of the European Union. Um, mm -hmm. There was all kinds of complications, but they even got worse, of course, because in in 2000 and uh, I think it was 2010, let me, let me just check on my memory. Yeah, I think it was 2012, the, the, an organization called CNAPS, um, which is the Council National des Activities Privées de Security, which is the licensing authority from France. This was introduced by the government and new laws came in, uh, which involved uh, qualifications, um, serious vetting, and we all became, come under the one authority of the CNAPS, both the security and the investigations. So that becomes a national requirement? It becomes a national requirement. Yeah. Okay. And you, ca you can't, in France, you cannot be a security person and be a private investigator. You can only be one or the other. Oh. Yeah, so at, at least when, I mean, technically working out of the, the United Kingdom, um, well, my partner does the security work and I do the investigation work. Um, so we, we, we have this partnership, but I still, um, it's only myself qualified to work in France because even Mike can't come over and work there unless he's with me. Um, Interesting. Um, so Mike... It actually speaks better French than me. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so you had to get a, a special uh, training for that, a diploma uh, that was compulsory. Is that right? Yeah. They, um, they had this uh, diploma, um, uh, which was done through the one, two universities. One was Montpellier, one was in Paris. Um, and basically, it was called the IFAR diploma, the Institute. Uh, diploma, which is a recognized degree in France. However, I thought my I had to take, it was two years to take the diploma and I was 63 years of age, 64, and I, I thought, oh God, is it time to, to pack it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't do, I thought I couldn't do without this. Anyway, they had a special system called VAE, which is a, a validation um, on your experience plus a, a dissertation of so many thousand words so mm. I the, the, basically the degree is split up into four parts and, and it's also uh, one part is how you make your um, invoices to clients um, what you tell them really? um, yeah all this is the, the, the invoicing the working your code of ethics uh, which is very strong it's the same as lawyers um, you know with client confidentiality uh, and uh, etc. Whereas, of course, the UK do. There's no client confidentially technically amongst investigators because, as I say, they're not licensed. They they do belong to various organisations which has a a code of ethics. But um, right, whether it's worth anything. Anyway, to cut a long story short, yeah, I uh, I took it and uh, it did take me two years. 
uh, cost me about a thousand euros, which wasn't too bad. And um, I failed the first two parts, which was the code of ethics, terribly. Um, um, and um, I had to uh, uh, sort of reset or reset, fill in uh, complete a pro form, and eventually they they awarded me this uh, uh, degree. So I carried on with my investigation work. And uh, are you still the only British agent to hold a uh, British PI to hold a French degree? Well, as far as I am aware, yes. There was one other that was advertising last year, um, claimed to be an ex-Canadian uh, uh, police officer and um, etc. in the south of France, but um, it turned out she didn't have a, a license. Um, uh, and um, anyway, to cut a long story short, she's no longer there now. Oh, huh. Interesting. Yes. So, and where is, what is the status of the licensing in the UK? I thought it was right on the edge of getting licensed last year. Well, it was, but we changed government, didn't we? Oh, and yeah. Of course, when you change government, everything else changes and some things get put on the back burner. Um, and according, I don't know it exactly, but I think it's about 2000. Uh, and 16 uh, May 2016 they're talking about it again in 1994 I, I went to the Houses of Parliament with an organisation I belong to in the UK a, a police organisation um, and uh, I spoke to the House on licensing and licensing in France 1996 it was, I'm sorry my goodness and um, and I know way before then they've been trying to introduce licensing. I think about since about 1983, but the the objections. I, I just I really don't know what the objections are. I don't either. It's amazing. I, I, I'm quite. I'll be quite outspoken on this, and a lot of people know me. Um, you know what? What is the problem? What are you hiding? Why are you con so concerned about a license? And I will say to the government. You listen to the organisations campaigning for and against and trying to apply, apply different rules. I think the government should make the decision. I'm sorry, the government should say, you will be licensed, you mm -hmm. will have these qualifications. If you don't, they're not, uh, and we don't accept you, you won't get your licence. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's far too much listening to other organisations or battling uh, to win some kind of accreditation than, than the UK government simply saying you will be licensed in accordance with European standards because Italy, Spain, um, many other countries are licensed. Some are not. Yeah, uh, for sure. We, we need to take a break, Graham. Uh, real quick, coming right back with Graham Dooley and now we're going to talk about skip tracing techniques that Graham uses in Europe. Okay, thank you. All right, go back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. If you've just joined the program, Graham Dooley is a private investigator operating in France and the United Kingdom, and we're going to talk about um, how how skip tracing is done from the UK, and this fascinates me, Graham, because I think we have it pretty easy in the United States. How do you how do you trace people uh, from France? Well, if you it's it's long handed. Let me put it that way. There's a lot of good old-fashioned foot slogging involved in many, many cases. You see, the, the U.S., you're very lucky. You've got this huge database um, uh, of people where you can press a button and find them. Um, but in France, you do have databases. Um, but, for example, if I've just had one today. It just come in to me to find uh, a, a guy. And all they've given me is an a name, not even a date of birth. A mm. name. Can you f- locate this guy? He's living in France. It's over such and such a matter. Of course, we have to exercise due diligence and ask the reasons why, etc. Um, and strangely enough, I, I did a little bit of work before going on air, and I, I think I've located them because somebody always leaves a footprint. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it be, and it's usually on the internet. That footprint is usually on the internet, whether it's uh, social websites, forums, and of which there are a lot in 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 France uh, with British people. Now, you mentioned tracing. I, I've been in in France over twenty years, and I can count on one hand the number of French clients I've had. And really? that's true, because all my clients come from outside of France. They want to trace uh, 
British, Americans, Israelis, anyone but French people, unless, of course, uh, it may be a different matter, such as a due diligence uh, work where people are looking to, to buy into companies, etc. Um, and um, but the the skip tracing, uh, we you call it skip tracing, isn't that that's right in the United States? Well, you know, it's it's kind of an all inclusive term. I mean, it, it's really called we call it locates, but sometimes yeah. uh, there are companies that are in business just to locate people, usually for debt, which is where the skip tracing um, yes. term yeah. comes from. Where, where does uh, you do you have the term process serving as well? Yes, we have that. Oh, that's the same service. I had a, a, a very, very interesting case a couple of years ago, which was, was just simply a, a trace and a process serving, which actually resulted in, um, I think there was almost a million pounds worth of assets being recovered. And that started off as a, a simple um, um, skip trace and, pros, uh, and delivery of, of letter. Um, what is that? I don't, know, I don't know what that is. What? A delivery what, of letter. Well, that- it's the it. it sometimes, uh, of course, the debtor has to be informed of the debt. And if they've left, for example, the UK and America, and we find them, the first thing to give them is the letter, saying, uh, "You owe such and such a thing. What are you going to oh, okay. do?" And then, of course, the legal formalities uh, drop in, especially if there's court proceedings, and and then they're demanded to repay. And it's not just as simple as that in France because you may get a, a debtor in the UK who's moved to France or, for example, um, uh, their, their debt as a resident of France uh, was in the UK. Well, they may have to go to two courts. They may have to go to, to recover the money. They may have to get a, a confirmation of the debt in the United Kingdom. They may have to get it rubber-stamped again in France by another judge to confirm that debt, so it can be quite expensive mm-hmm. um, the recovery. But this this particular one, um, um, well, do you want to ask question or do you want me to tell no, you? No, no, <laughs> you're doing just fine. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'll be having another drink of water soon. Um, I, I don't have my lemon. I usually suck a lemon before I, I speak. <laughs> I don't have it with me. Right. The um, anyway, this this was uh, a, a case in France and. Uh, it was a uh, basically somebody who, who was bankrupt, and um, we had to serve p- papers on them, and we had to find out where the address was. And I went up and I found this very very old farmhouse. I went up with another French investigator, and um, he came back to see me. And he said, "Oh, there's nobody in," and um, the usual thing. He was a young guy, he'd just started in in the, in investigations, and. I said, well, have you had a look round the back? And he said, no. So I went round the back and it was like Aladdin's cave. You have never seen so many motorhomes, boats, um, uh, caravans, motor cars, Range Rovers, Mercedes. Wow, the the barns and the fields were just full of them. Um, So what started off as basic as a, a... 253 pound process serve and locate it turned out um, it turned out that the guy had hidden the assets uh, and was claiming bankruptcy 
But of course, within days, uh, we notified the local WCA or the solicitors did in the United Kingdom. We arranged recovery and these um, uh, huge uh, lorries arrived and all the assets were seized and, and taken back. And the, the guy got, um, I think he got 18 months or two years imprisonment for it. Um, but you see, I, I always say to, to young investigators, no, no matter how menial the tax, task <laughs> Uh, look behind the scenes. Exactly. So, uh, so, be fine. so because you you took that one additional step, you reported back that he had all these assets, and that, then it, they were able to go after them. Yeah, well, they did. They didn't, they didn't tell me. I didn't know that's what I was looking for. It was just in conversation, and I spoke to the uh, to the lawyers, and I said, um, you know, I just <laughs> mentioned because <laughs> first of all, all the all the vehicles were registered in the United Kingdom, which was very unusual considering it was France, um, and um, so that started things rolling. And within, I think, within seven days, it was cleared up and we found a lot more assets as well in the way of property. The attorneys you were talking to must have felt like they hit gold when you told them that. Well, they did because, um, um, well, yes, they did. They did. But the, the, the bankruptcy courts are, are, are done through the, um, uh, in the UK, through a, a government organization. So yeah, I'm sure everybody was happy. I just had paid me fee. There was no, <laughs> no percentage on recovery, anything like that. I'd, I've never worked like that, which is um, probably why I'm looking at my electric bicycle in the office at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's let's just make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. You and I know, but you, so you charge your fee, uh, whatever that is, an hourly rate, or do you uh, sometimes a set fee, maybe? I um, do. I do an hourly rate and I do a okay. minimum rate and I will do a set fee. But what people fail to realize, especially in the United Kingdom, may I say, you understand it in the, in the States and, uh, and Canada, is we are professionals. And if somebody comes back with a, a prize to me and says, can you locate somebody? And I, I will go back to them and I will say, I can try mm -hmm. and locate them. I can search. And I will charge you a set fee of four hours work uh, minimum. And, and then we will look at the results. I will convey the results of our search to you. And in 80 to 90% uh, of my cases, we find them. If not, I will submit a further report and give you an idea of the percentage chance of locating the person. Um, so we, we basically, we want paying for our work and there are so many d investigators offer uh, no trace no fees mm -hmm. um, I, I don't work like that and the, I, I think right. that's what I'm able to keep my fees down to a reasonable level because you're spending uh, your time doing it and people are I'm paying for your time time and if somebody will, pays me four hours to work and they've got a 90% chance of recovery um, for a smaller fee then that's how I, I work and um, and um, yeah, and you know, at, at the end of at the end of the day, I am starting to mature in years and starting <laughs> winding down. And um, I don't I don't do any of the I don't lie in the field with a, a, a commando suit on and a pair of binoculars looking <laughs> at sporting couples in cars. Um, that's long gone. Um, but yeah, I, I seem to have 
I don't know what it is for locating people. It started in the police force. When I found people who were missing, whether they were, uh, I found one chap who um, uh, left the British Army. Uh, he'd gone AWOL, absent without leave, some 25 years previously in Ireland, just by look, just by speaking to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, and again, with the help of a French investigator in, in Paris, we found uh, located a, a, another gentleman who was an Israeli who'd. Uh, I, I'm not too sure. I'll get my facts right. Uh, whether he deserted or gone AWOL following um, uh, the, the one of the wars in, in Israel, and he'd left some twenty odd years ago and never been seen. And we we traced him from a postage stamp um, because he he contacted his sister after all these years and sent a letter, and he wouldn't say where he was, but all it had on was a postage stamp. And how did you do that? Well, my very good uh, friend um, in Paris, and you've met him also, I think, uh, Goulam Monsua. Uh huh. Uh, Goulam, he helped me uh, out, and he he went and made inquiries in the post office, and just because you could trace where the post office was, and by some strange uh, stroke of luck, somebody mentioned that somebody had a French American accent who did, if he ever did his post, was only seen at night hmm. uh, um, and come in to deliver. Um, and so I went over to Paris and we made some further inquiries and um, <laughs> we actually located uh, this gentleman and he'd been living in a room some, I don't think it was more than 10 metres square, uh, which is uh, about 10 yards square. Um, and he'd been living in this room for 10 years and um, his, his wife or ex-wife uh, took pity on him and, and said, you can have the room. Uh, and the gentleman, um, uh, 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 we think, had suffered for, uh, uh, some form of exposure uh, during his military career, um, which hadn't helped with his medical condition. And um, when I knocked on the door, the, the, it was an old tower. It was almost like a, a, a Frankenstein tower in, in Paris. <laughs> when I knocked on the door, there was this huge iron door and Goulam was behind me and I, I knocked on the door and this, this, this huge hand came round the door. I'll never forget it. It was really big with great long fingernails and, uh, and I said do you want me to speak English or French? And he said, oh, you can speak English. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, oh, are you so-and-so? And he said, yes. I said, I've got a message from your sister. Oh, he said, give me an hour. And so he shut the door. And then f he must have decided to get cleaned up. And, uh, of course, he came to the door an hour later and his, his cheeks were bleeding because he'd had a shave and... Oh, my goodness. And, and washed up. And he came outside and we spoke to him, he spoke to his sister on the, the telephone. Um, he couldn't stand the sun, he had to go back inside very quickly because it was a bright spring day. Mm -hmm. He spoke to his sister on the mobile telephone to confirm who he was and said, I don't want to speak to you. <laughs> so that was it, went back in his room and that was the end of the mission. But um, at least she knew he was still she okay. Knew he was still okay. Mm -hmm. and, so. Uh, yeah. This brings up a question for me, Graham, because, I mean, you, 
whether you're half Irish or not, you look Irish, and you certainly <laughs> have an Irish brogue. What is the reaction in France when you knock on somebody's door and you're standing at their doorstep looking for somebody? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say I have an Irish brogue in case there's any Irish in the <laughs> Well, I'd definitely not say that. Because <laughs> okay, to my, to my unsophisticated ears, you have that touch of Irish. Okay, thank you. That's nice to know. Um, the um, well, it, you don't always get the chance to knock on the door. You sometimes your locations are done by uh, telephone, by letter, uh, by other means. Um, but very often, I might be trying to locate an old friend who somebody hasn't seen for thirty years. Uh, you might be wanting to locate a family member. Um, who somebody has not seen for 20 or 30 years. And it, it's great. It gives me great satisfaction to find them. Oh, for sure. Um, when so they turn around and either I'm on the phone, we do, we, we do what we do with location as, uh, with family members, we always have a, uh, a short underwriting by the client to say that if we locate them, we will speak to the person first to see if they want to speak to you. For sure. That's the first thing, and uh, and very often, the, you know, they're so joyful. Uh, they're not always, um, and very often it's very sad. Um, not long ago, I had to locate um, uh, uh, um, a family who thought his sister had been given away at birth, and um, um, lo and behold, I think we located. Uh, the baby, so it was a very compromising position. It wasn't a baby now; she was fifty, uh, fifty odd years of age. Um, so that was very, very complicated and had to be handled very delicately indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, was this so, a child that had been given up at birth? Yeah, because I think in the sixties or seventies, a lot of Portuguese. Um, just as we have immigrants now from uh, mm -hmm. Syria and everywhere, apparently in the 60s and 70s, immigrants came from Portugal um, and settled down and, and got work. And um, and this particular one, the, the lady, had, uh, uh, apparently when the baby was born, the baby had either been given away or taken at birth. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we had to trace back through the paper archives to find the birth um, and it was possible the child was actually swapped at birth, um, so it was it was very very complicated. And so this, this can happen. Is that still possible with the privacy restrictions of the European Union? No, it's very it, it's very difficult, and we have to comply with the privacy laws. In fact, what we found was open source information. Of course, going back through the archives. And then we visited the hospitals and we actually visited, we could trace the, the, the lady who gave birth to the person did know the names of the doctor and did know the names of the of nurses. So we were able to trace them and speak to them hmm. and to see what they tell us. And, and naturally, there's only so, so many things they can say. But what they did say was 1960 was a different era than 2013 when it was. Times have changed uh, um, and you, we move on, but times were difficult apparently for, for some people coming into France in those days. Uh, very complicated and, and very sad. 
Yeah. So, so tell me when you are you're knocking on somebody's door, and you're you know looking for say a long lost uh, relative or somebody their family's concerned about. What do you say to them? How do you introduce yourself? I say to them quite simply, "Hi, do you speak English?" Because normally they do, because it's an English person, and they say, "Yes, I do." And I say. I wonder if you'd mind uh, helping me. I'm a, a researcher and I, I help people to locate families and missing persons. And I wonder if I could have a moment of your time and they usually invite me in and we start from there. Um, that's especially with family members. Mm-hmm. Now, bearing in mind a lot of the times what my traces are done, and I, I, I do utilize it, the subcontract with, with French investigators. Most of the people I find are, are, are British or English speaking, um, but a lot of the time they speak fluent French because they've been in France so long. Mm-hmm. So it's normally my subcontracted investigator that makes the first approach, and even on the telephone. We, we're quite, we, we have to be open about it. And I mean, with other cases which are um, uh, perhaps debt related and we have different ways of legally tracing people mm-hmm. but with, with tracing people that are a long lost um, family members relatives it, it has to be handled so delicately it's um, you know it, it, well, for sure due, a lot of due diligence involved as well on both sides yeah and you don't know what they know maybe they know nothing Correct, which is why we insist yeah. I won't take the take the case on um, unless it, if it is open source information, I will I will provide a link to a person and say then I'm sorry we won't go and see but you may want to start your inquiries down this road but that's not a confirmation if they want a confirmation we have to have it in writing that we can actually um, visit them and say, do you want to do... I've, I've done some work recently for uh, uh, American uh, TV where they... I think you have a program over there, I don't want to mention any names, where they, they trace um, long-lost friends from university and things like that, mm-hmm. and, then, and then they get together and there's a big rejo- rejoicing and they hold hands and kiss and hug. And, um, yeah, I've done a little bit of work for those. So... So what do you do, Graham, if you have somebody that, um, say, somebody wants to find their long-lost sweetheart from 40 years ago? Are you suspicious of that kind of, a, oh, of inquiry? Abs- absolutely. And uh, I, first of all, I have a, on my emails, a lot of my work has to be done um, through the web because I can't exactly go around to a client in Australia and, and discuss it with them. So what I do, I, I have... Um, a set response to say that if the person who, who is in my emailing with an inquiry does not supply uh, a business name or the full name and address and a contact phone number, I will not respond. Okay. So that's the first thing. I eliminate the chaff. If they won't tell me who they are, they won't verify, I don't speak to them. Mm-hmm. Once I know who they are, uh, I will then uh, speak to them. And I will tell them it's, you know, everything's confidential. I've the code of ethics, I have to swear by it and I'll go to jail if I break it. Um, so I'm not going to disclose who they are, but I need to know because we have to exercise due diligence with uh, uh, stalkers, etc. As a matter uh-huh. of fact, 
I have actually been the subject uh, uh, of a stalker myself, so I know how, how bad it is. And, right. And um, so, yeah, you've got to really uh, exercise the due diligence. And then before I take the inquiry, I will insist on a copy of the passport, a copy of a utility bill um, to say who they are. Uh, and then I know who they are. I've, ex- I've done all my due diligence necessary before taking mm-hmm. on the and I think most PIs would do that this day and age anyway. It's very good advice. And, and, and I think you said when, you, when we were talking earlier, you first of all, you ask the person if it's okay to put, put them in contact with the other person. You're not going to give up the, their information to your client until they agree that it can be given up. Is that right? No, that, that's the understanding yeah. um, of the client. And even sometimes, if, if they want to find them quick, I and I do find them. I'll I will speak to them, and if they turn around and say, you know, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to speak to this person. I'll just ring them up and say, yeah, we found them. They don't want to speak to you, mm-hmm. um, which is also the reason I take an advance fee. I may charge. Right, <laughs> exactly. I take an advance fee, otherwise I wouldn't get paid for anything because they wouldn't. Uh, they'd say, oh, if I can't speak to them, I won't pay you. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so is one country more difficult than another to do this kind of work? Um, I would... Look, I, I know in the United Kingdom, I have the UK databases for finding people. But to be honest, the database is only as good as the person who's downloaded the information of it. Correct. And we know that most company directors, if they're rogue directors, they will have put a, a false address on the database. And the same applies in France. Um, um, you can hide, you can change your, your name. It's just a matter of s- making sure you have as much information to start uh, to start with. Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water. Okay, all right. Well, while you're doing that, um, having a date of birth certainly helps. Well, this, this one today didn't have a date of birth. I actually found the date of birth through a UK database, strangely enough. Really? Um, so, yeah, they were searching for somebody in France. So that's and interesting it, to me, Graham, because I had understood that you couldn't get any information in the UK regarding any personal information. So there are databases. Oh, yeah. If you, if you've got a... Um, it, if they certainly if they've got a company, you can protect your address now with Companies House. You didn't used to, um, but on on my French databases I use the company company information uh, will give me the date of birth of, of the director, providing ask for particular don- documents. So that really isn't protected. It's the Council for uh, National Liberties, the CNL in France, as opposed to the Data Protection. Um, everything is changing. It's changing every every day. I see new emails about it, and trying to keep up with it is is very <laughs> weary and very tiring for most of other uh, us investigators. Um, uh, emails yeah. re- re- emails regarding more access or more restrictions. More restrictions. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. More restrictions, and um, and I, I'm probably a little cynical about that, but you don't. You people call themselves investigators because they've got all these databases and can find people. 
I think a good investigator should be able to find them without the databases because that's where the skills come in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I enjoy working in France because you have to do everything long-handed. People very often say, oh, that's expensive. I'm not paying that. And they go away and then they come back to you because it is expensive in France. Um, if you can't find it at the, at the end of a button, then you have to start making the phone calls, inquiries, visiting places, going to town halls, um, um, local French people. The, what I call the foot slogging, yes, it becomes expensive. Yeah. And, you know, I clients never, never understand that, you know, you have a starting point, but you have to go to the next point. That takes time, time and, and travel and mileage. And, and then you talk to that person. They may get, send you to another lead. And all that is very labor-intensive and tedious. Well, I'll give you an example of the, what this one I had a few days ago. It said uh, this was another one on, on, on some document service, process serving. It says, can you please arrange... Uh, for the delivery of some documents to such and such a person. Simple question, how much? <laughs> Simple answer, the price. Uh -huh. The email comes back yesterday, thank you very much, Graham, we accept your price. While you were there, could you ask them the following questions? Could you take photographs of the property? Mm -hmm. uh, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> Which all takes more time. Which all takes more time. So I go yeah. back to the guy and say, I'm sorry, the quote was to deliver the documents. If you want further inquiries, we'll do it. Now, a good processor, the, if he doesn't, if the person aren't in, he will make inquiries. That's what they do. Uh, you speak to neighbors and talk to people. Um, but when they specifically ask, they said, the, you know, the, the client mustn't be approached, just got to deliver the documents. And then you give this fee, and then uh, the goalposts are moved the next day. <laughs> so, um, right. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, say you're um, you're doing a search. Say you're checking with neighbors, or how? What do you say to them? Because you don't want to disclose why you're really doing what you're doing. Well, you don't have to tell the neighbors what you're doing. You just uh, look. If somebody. You put put yourself. You walk it. You're you're in the street, and somebody comes up to you and says quite openly, "Hi, I'm sorry. I wonder if you can help me. You tell me is John Smith around here? I've knocked on two houses, and the immediate answer is, um, no. There's no John Smith around here. Or, oh yeah, he lives across the road at number four. Mm. People people will not think. They will not normally ask you why. Um, um, not normally, and if they do, then sometimes you have to think of a, a uh, another reason. But you certainly can't disclose that you you you, you the reasons for tracing them. No, you but, don't want to say. Well, I'm a private investigator, and I've been hired to to uh, contact this guy about a daddy house. You, You're not you going to say that. <laughs> God, you, you mentioned the word private investigator, and most people freeze anyway. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, so I, I use the word researcher um, very often, mm -hmm. um, and I'm also paralegal, so I use the term paralegal investigator, which, th this, is, this is a cloud, isn't it, over the detective, it, it's always been there, you know, this this image of the gumshoe 
And um, but there again, we sometimes sometimes this image image has to be used if, if you to get the information and get it legally as well. Absolutely. So, so we don't. We have just a few minutes left, Graham. What would you say is the most difficult locate you've ever done? Well, it. I, I, it's, uh, do we have a break or are we about to finish? We're not going to take the second break. We just worked through it. So Okay, um, right. Well, let, are you still there? I'm still here. Yeah. I would, it wasn't so much a, a trace. It was in 2008. It was a case concerning a, a, a pedophile. Um, are you interested? Sure. Well, what happened, I, it was, this is one of the problems with the, the code of ethics and what you adhere to in France. I had a call from um, people through a forum and they were looking for an investigator to help them with a delicate situation. I contacted them and um, I met them. And what it was, it was a family and the family were concerned because the grandmother used to look after her daughter's children, son and daughter's children in France. Mm-hmm. And the son, the son and the, they were only about eight and nine, something like that. And the children um, went to to stay with this granddaughter, who let them go and play with a friend around the corner. And the friend's son, uh, it was allegedly that uh, they were taken um, in, into a wood, and and photographs were taken of these youngsters. Are you still there? I'm still here, and you yeah. know what I did. I just got notified that we have two minutes left. So okay, <laughs> so. right. So what happens? What happens? I report it to the police in France. The people don't want to make statements because they don't want to actually be involved. I'm told by the, the police in France if they discover anything on the guy's computer, then I'm liable. Uh, then then that's fine. But because of my code of ethics, I have to report this suspected paedophile. If they don't find anything on the computer, I am liable to imprisonment or fine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So I t- I went through with it. It went to the procurator. It took three months. By the time they visited the guy, he was up to all kinds of things as well. He'd, he'd been in prison in the United Kingdom, we believe. Um, but he there wasn't there was very little on the computer. There was enough to take him to court. He was taken to court, and I think the judge ordered that he he saw a, a doctor. Um, and you so were relieved. He, <laughs> well, I, I was relieved. I, they didn't even tell me the result. I found that out myself. Uh. Um, but yeah, but yeah, these are things you don't realise when you become an investigator. Sometimes in other countries, that this code of ethics, you're professionally bound. Exactly. If you discover a crime or a problem, you're professionally bound to take that step further. Yeah. And these people wouldn't make statements, not even the family. Um, but then uh, I had to do something about it. So, yeah. uh, Well, we yeah. are at the end of our hour. Graham, I, you had so much success in locating people all over the world with the barest of information. I'm so pleased to share the microphone with you today. Thank you so much. Thank um, you very much. And uh, to my listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators around the globe like Graham Dooley. Thank you, Graham. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 